This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. School choice advocates are emerging victorious in one state legislature after another. Indiana has lifted income limits and enrollment ages on its choice scholarship program. West Virginia and Kentucky have funded savings accounts that help pay tuition at private schools. Nevada, Missouri, Florida, and Montana have all expanded their school choice initiatives, and there's more. Now we have a new book out that makes the case for school choice and really even more broadly. Clinton Bullock and Kate Hardiman have issued a call for remaking the country's educational system from the ground up in a book just released by the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Its title is Unshackled, Freeing America's K-12 Education System. It questions the country's long history of school districts operating schools within a specific geographical area under an elected school board. Instead, they say schools should be chosen by parents and they should be funded directly by state governments. Well, I'm pleased to have Clint Bullock with me on the Education Exchange today. He is an Associate Justice on the Arizona Supreme Court. And before that, he argued the legal case before the Wisconsin Supreme Court that yielded the very first decision by a state Supreme Court that found school vouchers for students attending religious schools to be constitutional. So thank you, Clint, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Paul, thank you. And and as we were getting ready to do this, I think that we are celebrating our 30th anniversary of working together this year. Uh, And of course, it did start with you serving as uh, a very impromptu expert witness (laughs) in the trial court in Milwaukee when we were defending that program. Well, things are being thrown together very quickly in that innocent age that we were in back then. Uh, we, we know a lot more about uh, the opposition to be confronted and uh, sources of support today than we, we knew back then. But Clint, I have a question to ask of you, and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be sounding sort of critical, uh, but why are you attacking the oldest, uh, one of the oldest of our country's political institutions, the school board? You know, so many of our governmental institutions today are being criticized and undermined and attacked. Why are you joining in the fray and attacking school boards? <laughs> Paul, that's a great place to start. And I think that one of the overlooked areas of reform is uh, essentially abolishing or reducing Uh, the scope of school districts. I would say we're not out to abolish school boards. We wanna move them out of the political arena and into the schools. We think every school should be uh, operated by its own autonomous board and that the districts which absorb a massive amount of the funding in American education. In in Arizona, it's about 50 cents out of every dollar gets absorbed by the school district before it ever reaches the classroom. Um, It is a source of educational inequality. It is a source of massive bureaucracy. It is uh, receptive to tremendous special interest pressure in the political arena. So we think that uh, as we move to deregulate and decentralize American education, uh, 
really removing the middleman that separates consumers from producers uh, is, is an essential part of education reform. Well, the people who run the district office say they provide lots of services to school boards. And if you eliminated those districts, you still have to provide those services in, in one way or another, whether it's to guide the special education program or to uh, deal with the school lunch program or just the transportation system. There's just so much out there that really isn't exactly teaching in the classroom, but is part of the ancillary structure necessary to do so. How are you going to provide all those services? So I, I, in the book, we look a lot at how charter schools are performing. And of course, many charter schools have to perform exactly those services. And they pool their resources and they uh, essentially put together entities or uh, contract out for services in a way that makes economic sense. Um, you know, they certainly don't all replicate these uh, special ed services or transportation services or meal services, but they either pool their resources or, or contract them out. That's the way that we ought to do it. School districts, unfortunately, <laughs> are not mere service providers. They're political pilot bureaus. And you look at, at the, you, you know, in, a, in an average uh, urban school district, the top 200 employees will earn more uh, than the top paid uh, uh, teacher in the school district. And that's simply crazy. These, uh, these administrators in most instances are not adding value to the educational enterprise. Uh, they're simply adding red tape and uh, uh, effectuating uh, political uh, doctrines and uh, we need to, to, to replicate what charter schools are doing and really put resources into the classroom rather than into the central bureaucracy. Every time we have increased funding for education, a huge part of the money is absorbed away by the bureaucracy and doesn't reach the classroom in the form of higher teacher salaries uh, or, or spending to actually educate children. Well, you're certainly right that there's a lot of inefficiency in this uh, bureaucratic organization called the school system or the school district. Uh, but we know that they really the key thing for better education is the teacher. The teacher is the most important figure at school that affects the performance of the child. There's lots of data out there to support that. Uh, so until we improve the teaching profession, are we ever going to get any improvement in the in the learning experiences of children. I mean, isn't sort of abolishing the school board sort of a, 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 a going around the central problem? We should really be focusing on how do we get better teachers? Well, there are a lot of central problems. <laughs> and I think that if we if we abolish school districts or, or, or turn them into service providers, um, uh, we would uh, achieve a great deal of change, but you certainly put your finger on the most essential element in the educational enter enterprise, and that is, uh, that is teachers. And again, looking at how charter schools operate as opposed to how uh, the state system operates, you could not possibly <laughs> see a, a more different system. Charter schools hire uh, 
people who are educated in their fields rather than in schools of education. They pay based on performance and based on the, uh, this, the relative scarcity of a particular uh, supply. For example, math teachers and science teachers often get paid more than gym teachers or, or uh, uh, elective teachers. And uh, they're, they are uh, rewarded often handsomely based on uh, their expertise and moving their, their kids' uh, academic performance. So I think that um, making the system, and, and of course, most, most, uh, most charter schools are, are neither unionized nor uh, do they have um, uh, tenure systems. So uh, I think that moving away from uh, a government uh, mandated system where we're looking at inputs rather than outputs, where we're looking at whether a teacher is certified, for example, rather than uh, how well the teacher is performing. All of this is of a piece. And I think that, that uh, a focus on school districts um, and decentralizing the system to where hiring and firing decisions are made at a school level rather than in a central bureaucracy level it's uh, it's all part of, of the same puzzle. So uh, tell me exactly how your proposal works. So we're not gonna have school districts. We are gonna have government funding of the schools. The schools are to be autonomous. How do we select who the head of the school is and how does this work? Do we have a state secretary of education that's gonna try to manage you know, thousands and thousands of schools? No, I think the last thing we should do is to further centralize education. But what, uh, what regular district schools would look like, or what we call district schools now, um, uh, they would be far more autonomous, and they would report to the state directly um, in terms of performance and, and making sure that they are uh, spending their money on the educational enterprise. But apart from that, they would be autonomous and run uh, by school boards, which would be comprised of parents and uh, teachers and members of the community who have a direct stake in the outcome of, uh, of, of that particular school. Uh, they would essentially be um, uh, very similar to the operation of charter schools and, uh, and the money for the schools would be provided by the state, but it would be brought to the schools by the children themselves. So that uh, just like, it, it would be very similar to our system of post-secondary education where you have private providers and public providers. The public providers are responsible to the state, but in order to receive the vast majority of their income, they have to appeal to the students to come and bring their money with them. So if you wanna start a school under your system, how do you do it? What, what's the first step that you take? Well, um, we have to remember that every state is under a state constitutional obligation to provide a school system. And so the state would be responsible for making sure that there is a system of schools. And this is how it varies from charter schools. You know, I, uh, uh, no one is mandating that a charter school operate, but these state 
these state schools uh, would be um, essentially neighborhood schools and the state would be responsible for ensuring that a, uh, a school is operational in, in every part of, of the state. Uh, but from there, they would essentially authorize uh, school boards to take responsibility for uh, receiving funding and for operating um, uh, a, a school system. It would be similar to the system that we have in school districts today, but it would be school-based. So each school would uh, would have its own board, which would set the um, uh, the curriculum subject to state standards, hire and fire teachers, um, and uh, hire and fire support uh, support staff. Well, I can see that this would idea would have a, a tough road to hoe uh, if you were in Massachusetts, because in Massachusetts, we have all these little towns who already have their schools. And now you're gonna say, these towns are gonna have to give up their schools and the state is going to what? Uh, appoint uh, the boards or uh, appoint a, a leader at each of these schools and, and, and all that property tax that's already supporting school How's that going to be replaced? Is the state going to be willing to impose taxes that will replace the property tax? So, of course, property taxes are a major source of educational inequality in our in our society. And yes, we do think that uh, uh, that that schools, public schools, should be primarily funded by the state, which has. Uh, in, in every instance, as far as I know, the primary responsibility to provide a school system. But we would, uh, we would retain local control, except take it a, a step further. And that is, instead of having arbitrary school districts, many of whose lines, and certainly it would be true in Massachusetts, have not changed much in hundreds of years um, and certainly don't reflect uh, the dynamics of, of the 21st century. Um, these, the boards would operate uh, at, at the school level. And for a, a small town that has an outstanding school system, I don't suspect very much would change. I suspect that uh, uh, board members who are who serve on district boards would would serve on on school boards as well, and that uh, the administrators, if they're doing a good job, the teachers who are doing a good job, uh, they will they will stay in place. In fact, uh, as far as the teachers are concerned, considering that we are. Uh, eliminating a huge part of central bureaucracy, if we simply have the same amount of money that is currently being spent on education, it's going to end up <laughs> uh, increasing substantially uh, the salaries of, of, of at least the very best school teachers. Well, this all sounds very promising, but I have to ask this question. In our town, we have... Uh, some neighborhoods that everybody wants to send their child to that school. I live in one of those neighborhoods. I'm very lucky, although I don't have any children in school right now, but people are, are paying a lot of extra cash in order to live in that neighborhood just so they can send their child to this particular school. Now, if you had your system in place, how are you going to 
deal with the fact that some schools are going to be very popular and other schools are not. So how do you sort things out? Well, I think that um, instead of having uh, uh, the, the situation sorted out by ability to pay, by wealth, uh, you would simply have a system where the schools are, are open to all, um, not based on, on arbitrary district lines, not based on wealth, um, but based on, on uh, uh, the ability of, of schools to attract students. And it sounds like these schools would have no problem whatsoever attracting, attracting students. But instead of saying, you know what, you're not wealthy enough to live in this community, you don't get to go here. Um, you would have uh, a system where essentially uh, you would have uh, a, a lottery system in terms of, of uh, kids being admitted. But at the same time, it's absolutely essential to have a system where, um, uh, where parents can use the dollars that are allocated to their children's education and, and choose from a variety of, um, uh, of, of schools, public, private, uh, the new um, learning pods, whatever, they, whatever the situation might, might be. So we're going to, I think it's necessary to uh, dramatically increase uh, the number of schools that are accessible to every student. Well, you mentioned the higher educational system and the way it works in higher education is the places where everybody wants to go to. Uh, the colleges uh, just set uh, higher and higher expectations for admission. And so um, they don't expand their operations. They, they just become more um, exclusive in their recruitment. So wouldn't the inevitable tendency of this system be, be one where uh, you would have schools selecting the most talented kids, maybe not always the richest kids, although there's a correlation there, uh, and, and then say, okay, we're going to take the kids we want to take. So how do you sort of deal with that? Uh, you know, this is a big issue now in Boston and New York City. Uh, the exam schools have been um, called into question by uh, uh, the Board of Education, and they're, they're now saying you have to, uh, can't have an exam school anymore. Can you have exam schools under, under the plan you're proposing? So we do have to remember that these are common schools um, that we're talking about here. And the baseline presumption ought to be that all of them should be open to all on an equal, on an equal basis. Many charter schools, uh, in various states operate that way as well. Um, but can the system also have distinctive uh, school choices? And here I think that um, recognizing uh, that, that the private sector can be a part of the choice system. You know, the, the constitutions of the states generally require that there be baseline opportunities for students. And that's really, you know, that's, that's, where the majority, the vast majority of, of kids in our system uh, uh, currently operate. Um, and that is the part of the system that has been so impervious to reform and impervious to improvement. 
Um, and I think injecting these kinds of, of competitive forces and choice forces and decentralization forces uh, will have their greatest impact. Uh, but allowing choice outside of the system where you can have distinctive educational programs, some of them for gifted kids, some of them uh, like the KIPP academies and, and uh, inner city Catholic schools who serve uh, predominantly low-income kids. Um, having those distinctive choices available, I think, is an essential part of the overall, the overall package. So one of the uh, issues that's come up recently is uh, instruction in history and in civic studies. And there's a movement out there called uh, critical race theory that says we need to restructure our curriculum. Now, if you're going to leave it up to all these schools as to what to teach and how to teach and whom to teach, uh, what's, how, do you, how do you deal with these controversial curricular questions? Are you going to let uh, each school decide whether or not they want to have uh, the idea of uh, uh, capitalism has been the tool that has been used to suppress uh, uh, Black Americans for generations and centuries. Is that is that something you're you're saying? Well, if that's what people want to teach, then that's fine. Well, you know, I have to be a bit careful here because we've got some some laws uh, that were passed in Arizona that could very well head head to my court <laughs> in terms of their uh, constitutionality and, and application. But I think, um, you know, certainly uh, uh, the state will, e even in a decentralized system, the state is going to continue being the primary funder and is, and is going to be the, the pri primary source of, of educational policy. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, those sorts of questions will, will at least for the common schools, uh, will be dealt with primarily at the state level, but the state um, in turn can give schools a great deal of flexibility in that regard. Uh, for charter schools, you know, there's really not been a one size fits all uh, system. You know, some states have greater autonomy in terms of what has to be taught. Um, other states really require a, a great deal of conformity uh, to state standards. In the private school arena, though, um, you know, with private school choice, uh, there has been a great deal of educational um, uh, diversity in terms of uh, the types of, of approaches. For example, um, in Milwaukee and Cleveland, there have been Afrocentric schools. Uh, there have been schools uh, that uh, 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 that are associated with one type of educational philosophy or or another. Tr also true in in charter schools to an extent, where you have Montessori schools and art focused schools and that sort of thing. So I'd say in the common schools, the common schools are still going to be subject. Uh, to, to state standards and uh, where you have uh, a choice to go outside of the system, you're gonna have greater autonomy uh, there. And, you know, we're America, we, we have to live with uh, diversity of thought and, and diversity of approach. Well, I, you know, I, I, 
I can see your argument, but then I wonder about the difference between the private sector and the public sector here. It seems a little bit fuzzy because every school is going to get funded by the state government, regardless of whether they're a private school or a public school. And I think they're all going to get the same amount of money, or unless you tell me differently. So what's the difference between a private school and one that is uh, operated by the state? So um, uh, certainly the lines between purely private and purely public have blurred tremendously over the last, um, you know, over the last several decades, both in the post-secondary area and uh, in the K-12 arena. And um, uh, we in both sectors see private schools that don't accept government money at all because they want to maintain uh, complete independence. And I think that we'll, we'll continue to see that. Um, but uh, basically, you know, the, I, I think that uh, what we're seeing is, is a continuum where schools that are completely funded by public coffers are subject to, to greater, uh, greater regulation. Um, and schools, uh, it, the more you shift uh, the, the transmission of dollars into the hands of parents, uh, rather than directly uh, sent to the schools by central um, administrators, the more educational diversity you are going to you're going to see. You know, this is an issue that is um, that we're confronting not just in the education arena, but in all sorts of arenas right now. And you know, what is private and and what is public and uh, you know, I, I don't think that there's a, a one size fits all answer. Uh, you know, from a policy perspective, I, I like letting a thousand flowers bloom. You know, you see uh, in Arizona, two of the greatest charter models in the entire country, great hearts and, and basis. They could not be more different in terms of uh, their um, educational formula. Um, they do both have to teach uh, to, to uh, the state standards at the same time. And uh, allowing that, that autonomy has, has really produced tremendous educational benefits. Well, it's a fascinating idea. And I've never been fond of school boards. I think that uh, there's a lot to what you say about the school boards have created a bureaucracy and, uh, and, and school boards are very self-serving institutions, uh, but there's a lot of challenges going from uh, here to there. Do you think your ideas have any practical application? Theoretically, they make great sense, to, but what are the politics? How do you get from here to there? You know, uh, that's an, a wonderful question, Paul. And one of the things that uh, I think school choice proponents have uh, recognized over the decades is just how difficult that amount of change has been. But we have been subjected to criticism that we are anti-public schools. And, uh, and I think that that, uh, that criticism often is a valid one. It's less valid for people like you, Paul, who have done so much great research 
uh, in the in the public school sector. Um, but a lot of choice advocates have really uh, ignored um, what uh, the 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 venue in which uh, the vast majority of kids are are educated. And I think if you're going to look at reform, uh, you have to begin with the question, which is the question that we begin uh, our book with, and that is, if we were starting a system from scratch today without any preconceptions, but with the incredible technological tools that are that are at our fingertips and are hardly being used in, in traditional public schools, what would it look like? And we have not really, I, I think our reform efforts have been too small, not too, not too big. Um, and that we really need to contemplate what the system should, should look like in the 21st century. And uh, will this system appear automatically? <laughs> we both know the answer to that is emphatically no. Um, but when you're thinking small, um, uh, oftentimes uh, you, you see very, very small results. And I think reimagining public schools is the first step to recreating public schools. Well, thank you, Clint, for uh, this illuminating discussion of your important new book, Unshackled, Freeing America's K-12 Educational System. It's been published by the Hoover Institution. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Paul, it's always great to be with you. I've been speaking with Justice Clint Bullock, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court for the state of Arizona. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.